0: This is The Global Gambit. In the Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy, and current affairs. Each episode, your host, Piotr Kurzin, brings you interviews and panels with top tier academics, journalists, and policymakers seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us, and question and critically analyze these matters. This is The Global Gambit.
1: Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of The Global Gambit. It's Piotr speaking. Um, This time we're going to be discussing China. Given geopolitics (laughs) and the globe uh, and international relations, China is infamous. It is almost ubiquitous with any conversation that involves great power politics, grand strategy, but almost anything at all, to be honest. It's very likely that someone somewhere will ask a question pertaining to China regarding an issue you could be discussing uh, at all about anything. So what's happening now, though, within China is uh, is quite notable. Uh, in the past few days, we've seen protests uh, occurring across the country. It's difficult to, as it stands, tell just how big they are, what the situation is in, in- intricate details. But what it basically stands is that this has captured a large array of the global attention because of how rare it can be sometimes. And if it does happen, how quickly suppressed or uh, limited in the exposure that it gets because of the uh, quite heavy hand and uh, centralised control the CCP or Chinese Communist Party does have. But to discuss these developments and what they may mean for President Xi's uh, tenability, uh, China's foreign policy, and just generally what was the uh, recent Chinese Communist Party summit, which they have every five years, is uh, James Palmer. James Palmer is a, uh, the deputy editor of Foreign Policy, one of my favourite foreign-orientated publications, and he writes uh, the weekly China Brief newsletter. So there's not many people, I think, better positioned than James to be able to take us through some of the recent developments and lo- longer-standing overarching issues as well. Uh, he's also the author of The Bloody White Baron, the extraordinary story of the Russian nobleman who became the last Khan of Mongolia, and the death of Mao, the Sahan earthquake, and the birth of New China. So he's done a multitude of different things from many different angles. Thank you, James, so much for joining The Global Gambit. How are you?
2: Oh, very well. Thank you for having me.
1: Great. Well, um, I guess we'll dive in. But um, as always, this is a live conversation, so we could have uh, one an array of different things come up. We could have some breaking news even whilst we host the conversation. But um, I-, I think maybe a good place to start is if you could take us through some of the most recent development, the funniest being that China, China bots and trolls were attempting to populate twitter with it was it an overwhelming amount of pornographic related material to try and stem the flow of information and footage that was coming out of china vis-a-vis the the protests um but maybe you could
2: take a step back and take us through the bigger picture of that so they were trying to spam basically chinese language twitter in particular because it's always the chinese diaspora that they're most worried about you know the domestic politics are always the priority in china um followed by management of the diaspora followed by relations with the US followed by everything else and so they're always very worried about the about stuff spreading into the greater kind of chinese language sphere uh, because obviously there's a huge number of chinese speakers outside of uh, the PRC itself whether that's in in taiwan in singapore in malaysia um or or, or you know all over the the diaspora generally so so they spammed Twitter with basically hashtags related to the major cities where protests were occurring—Beijing, Shanghai, and so on—with uh, escort bots, like uh, mostly accounts that hadn't been activated for many years, way out of proportion to the to the presence of this kind of pornographic material on, on any other city, on any other city like New York or sort of London that people tested as a control point, and attempted to essentially drown out the drown out the, the conversation or make it hard for people to find to find materials it didn't seem to work terribly well because, you know, obviously the actual videos and information on the protest was the stuff that was being retweeted and therefore getting more attention and showing up in people's searches. Uh, but it was a sign of how kind of, firstly, what a big range of tools they have, and secondly, how they're not necessarily that adept at using them. So, in the broader scheme of things, what should we make of these
1: protests? Now, um, for listeners, I did start a sub stack and the first piece I wrote was a, a synopsis of what's happened in the past three days. It's not meant to be comprehensive like James's. I think you published a recent article covering this much more. Um, so I recommend readers to go and check out uh, your piece uh, and foreign policy more broadly. But generally, what I understand is that these protests were triggered by a, the death of 10 people in Arunqui, capital of the um, province in the northwest of China, which you may well know because uh, of its relationship to the Uyghurs, um as that's one of the main areas that they, they, they reside. Could you take us through a little bit? Is that true? Has it been over overly utilised as a sort of point of origin? That was trigger mechanism,
2: or is it largely what triggered? That was thieves? definitely the trigger. So, so on Thursday night, at least ten people, maybe as many as forty, we're not certain yet, were killed in an apartment fire in Urimchi. Now, stories immediately started spreading online that the fire that firefighters had been delayed in reaching them because of COVID barriers. Because you know the lockdown in China involves a lot of physical barriers, like walls going up, things being sealed off, and that people had been unable to escape because the exits to the apartment building had been blocked again for COVID control. Now, in Xinjiang, that all, exits were also often sealed for. Um, for control of the Uyghur more broadly, so a lot of these a lot of these apartment uh, complexes only have a single exit. That exit can often be locked um, in order to keep people in. I remember a friend uh, going there and finding that, like, she literally couldn't leave her parents' apartment complex for five days because you had to pass a ID check and a facial recognition check to leave the com- to leave the compound. This was before COVID. Um, and she wasn't in the system properly because she'd been away for several years. So, so multiple levels of control with a particular significance in Xinjiang, where there have been, you know, repeated like crackdowns, crimes against humanity, attempts to round up and control Uyghur uh, young men in particular. But the broader, the broader COVID controls are something that, that are familiar all over China. So even without strong evidence that that. that in fact, the fire was was worsened by was worsened by zero covid policies. People assumed that it was because they could see their own buildings locked down, sealed in, and they were also just angry and frustrated at the state of lockdown. So that then triggered really three waves of protest. You had an immediate wave of big protest in Xinjiang itself, where you know from the videos, entire squares were filled like late at night on a freezing winter night in, uh, in a cold you know province. Um, and those prompted some immediate change to Xinjiang COVID policy, fairly weak change, but, but promises that areas which were low risk would be released from lockdown. Now, the problem is there are very few areas that are designated as low risk. Um, so it's, it was kind of a meaningless change, but it was at least something that the local officials could, could tell the crowds. You then had two waves of protests spinning off from that. One wave is big protests against the conditions of lockdown themselves, so people in Wuhan all over, uh, in particular, but all over the country, like tearing down barriers, calling for an end to lockdown. And then in some areas, particularly in the, the bigger cities like Shanghai and Beijing, those became smaller protests of groups of hundreds of people or so directly calling for freedom of speech and end to Communist Party rule in some cases calling, yelling out Xi Jinping, stand down, uh, in Shanghai, at least, those were also taken up on university campuses, at least 50 university campuses had protests. So you, you see this like initial anger and uh, about lockdown and this and this anger at being lied to, unable to mourn, metamorphizing into a, a, a bigger, more ideological kind of um, threat to the party.
1: Some people are calling these already a revolt. Um, some people are saying that what's happening in Iran is, you know, not necessarily a trigger, but something that has inspired people more than they may have done in, in the past or in other certain circumstances. Generally, we've seen a, a shift, I think, in um the the sort of pecking order of autocratic uh, nations in the past. I mean, put it this way, a year ago, if we cast our minds back, we had a summit for democracies. The Russians, the Chinese were hosting their own sort of response of a summit. Um, But now we've got a, you know, a rather interesting situation where the, the autocratic countries are looking Quite precarious. Not all of them, of course, and the democratic side of the world is not exactly free of issues. But what would you say about the um, propensity for Chinese people to come out onto the streets also because of what's happened in Iran? And what about these white papers as well, the white, the blank papers or even the equation that I think some people have written down?
2: (laughs) You know, I think the, that's very clever. I yeah, the it's white clever. paper as a symbol of protest against censorship, um, you know, like didn't originate in China. I think we saw it first in Russia, but I wouldn't be surprised if they got it from someone else. Um, and it's a very powerful symbol, but it's confined, as I say, largely to this to the more ideological side of the protests. And I think we we have to be careful because those protests were relatively small in global terms. They were very significant for China because normally. Like the idea of even of even one person in the middle of Shanghai shouting Xi Jinping step down would be amazing. Like when we had the Sutong Bridge protest in Beijing just before the Party Congress, it was literally one guy and some banners. And that made that made, you know, news throughout the Chinese diaspora and was reported on widely. And now we have hundreds of people doing it. Now that of course suggests that you may have like a potentially escalating scenario you know if you have one person and then and then hundreds of people you know do you have thousands of people at some point in the future do you have tens of thousands but they're trying very hard to squash those protests now they've been going around, calling up uh, people involved in the protests today threatening them in some cases arresting them tracing them through either phone tagging or surveillance cameras it seems and those also tended to be like a quite a specific group now it's a group that they're more sensitive about which is mostly quite well off, well educated young people in the cities. Where well, I think you can say that there is a kind of sense of, of revolt is against lockdown, against against the strength of COVID measures. And that's going to be even more difficult to handle because they're really their repressive capacities, like their ability to suppress people is already being stretched by doing zero COVID. Like that involves enormous amounts of manpower, enormous amounts of time and energy and money something like 2 or 3% of the country's gdp is being spent on testing alone and then um recruiting or drawing in from other parts of the government huge numbers of people to to handle to handle keeping people locked down to be uh, dabai like big whites the the guys in ppe we saw notices still unconfirmed but recruitment notices for hundreds more people to basically handle potential protesters in different cities uh, coming out on sunday and monday and i and i think that's hard to contain because people are really angry and really frustrated and they might not see it as directly an anti-government thing they might not be calling for the overthrow of the communist party but they want an end to lockdown uh, but the party is committed to lockdown xi jinping is personally committed to the zero covid policy covid numbers are absolutely exploding this is the the worst wave we've seen in china yet case numbers are topping 40,000 a day which ironically is is actually more than the US figures at the moment. So that's mostly because the Chinese are counting every single case they can find. And the US face certainly does not count every case. The vast majority of cases in the US are going unrecorded um, right now. So you have just this this huge, dispersed, constantly flowing and bubbling river of anger. Which could also potentially turn more directly anti-government if it's if there's heavy suppression measures used. So they're they're juggling, you know, a million things, uh, fa- a thousand potential protests right now in different areas and under different conditions of lockdown, under different conditions of economic and personal suffering resulting from lockdown.
1: I, I agree that I think um, for the most part, from what I've been hearing from some people, uh, this is mainly about the restrictions of. of- COVID and this policy since I believe China is the only country that still implements a zero COVID policy as of now and it's less, I mean, the thing about protests I think listeners should always keep in mind is that they'll be hijacked or at least uh, attempted to be hijacked by people who have slightly different agendas and, and want to change the narrative a little bit so you know, we, we saw some people saying down with President Xi down with the CCP I think were some of the statements that were shown on, on billboards and being challenged. But uh, I don't think that they represent the majority. Would you, would you associate say that or, or it's just unclear at this point? And even I, if I, did, I, I think, think that's it's be to be,
2: the, most of the protests have been specifically anti-lockdown. And then we've got these very potent but, but smaller protests with a, a more kind of general pro-freedom, pro-freedom of speech, anti-party bent. Some, And again, it, it differs a lot by location because there's no organising force here. There's no, there's no like, wider movement except that people are seeing and, and imitating other, like others in spirit. But, the, but there isn't even the kind of level of coordination you see with like, Russian or Iranian protests where stuff is run through Telegram and so on. There's just this, this kind of feeling of it's been too much, like we have to say something. And I think more than anything else, the sense of hopelessness that has really seized young Chinese people in particular over the last two years is a big part of this. You know, you have all this stuff where people are talking about we're the last generation, like we're the, we're the final generation of Chinese. There's, there's no more because our hopes are so crushed. And they've been crushed not only by the restrictions of zero COVID policy, by the, by even when you're not living under lockdown, fearing at any moment that you might be put under lockdown and so being unable to plan for the future, by the feeling of being cut off from the world and cut off from the world, not just again because of, you know, flights being canceled and quarantines and so on and people not being able to get visas, p- uh, companies holding your passport much more than they used to, all this kind of thing. You have, you have like 10 years, you know, well, eight years before 2020, before that of, of Xi Jinping's rule, just taking away the freedoms that the middle class was used to taking away relative freedom of speech online, taking away the ability to have hobbies because the hobby spaces got closed down, taking away the ability to watch from shows that you like, because they were taken offline for being uh, ideologically unacceptable or just as part of general xenophobia, um, taking away the ability to, to, you know, deal freely with fun as if you were in any way connected to the government because the level of paranoia got so high taking, um, Taking away, if you're Uyghur, you know, like the ability to leave your house or or choose your job, so that sense of like just gradual of just gradual loss of freedom and of no end of sight has really just just built up on people, and then almost I think COVID and lockdown was the the final straw. Um, on it, it's very directly oppressive, but it's also but it wouldn't be as painful and as potent without those years of growing oppression beforehand. And, you know, when, whenever you have protests, often the trigger for it is, is a moment of hope that's taken away or a promise that's taken away. In this case, I think it was two things. It was firstly the confirmation of she as basically ruler for life at the party congress, like that, there's, that he, he wasn't stepping down like the two leaders before him had done. Um, stepping down after ten years—that we already kind of knew that was happening in 2018—but it was, you know, finalised and confirmed by the party congress, by the humiliation of Hu Jintao at the congress, uh, all this kind of thing. But, but also, you had this promise of like COVID loosening, this um, dynamic zero COVID policy that was issued that suggested that there would be some change, and markets responded by going up. But then, instead of that change, you see even more lockdown in response to. A huge burst of COVID cases, a huge burst of lockdown, a huge burst of control. And so you had those hopes raised and then crushed. And I think that, as well as the fire, as well as those years of oppression, all combined so that the fire was a spark on some very on some very piled up timber by that point. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, James
0: shifting over a little bit now to
1: sort of I want to focus on President Xi, um, because for listeners, if they weren't aware, China had what was known as the uh, conference or summit about a month ago, they have these every five years. And this was quite a notable one because of what happened with Hin Jun Tao, uh, Xi's predecessor, right? And he was basically, maybe some people saw the footage of uh, this elderly man being let out, clutching or attempting to clutch what looked like a, a folder. So I was wondering if you could just take us through a little bit about What's the situation there now, since what a month on? But also, how are these protests playing into into the psyche of Xi? Um, are, is he is he going to be seeing this as a bit of a headache given everything else that's going on, or or is are they somewhat a bit of a you know there's there is also some dissatisfaction so to speak with the way that the CCP uh, has been sort of reconstructing itself maybe in the past couple of years or if you could just outline some of your thoughts there I think that'd be quite interesting.
2: Sure so the party congress saw this real finalization of Xi's solidification of power like the the, the capstone as it were on the already laid foundations and the humiliation of Hu Jintao the uh, previous leader was very much part of that I think. Um, I'm increasingly in the camp that it was pre-planned it was deliberate Laying hands on who sent a message to, in particular, the, the party elders—the once powerful, kind of retired leaders who, uh, in whose time and even in, in Jiang Zemin, his predecessor's time, exerted a very strong influence on the party—that they could be touched, that they could be that they could be controlled, that they could be arrested—and she has threatened them reportedly several times before, according to you know the very unreliable world of Chinese uh, Chinese. Political gossip, but this really, this, this really did it in public. You know, this this sent a very clear mafia-like message. So, Xi's power seemed, you know, kind of absolute, and uh, his his own ideological bent is very clear. He is a extremely hostile to the to the rest of the world in ideological terms. He sees Chinese. He sees party rule as nece- as nece- necessary, not only for Himself and his family and their their own future, but for the country's future as a whole, he's the son of one of the kind of founding revolutionaries. Not a first tier one like Mao, but you know the sort of sec- solid second tier revolutionaries. He's essentially a, a, a red aristocrat, and he's very determined to protect those privileges and to pro- and to keep the the party first and foremost. Now that's taking place against the background of a big economic shift in China, one that was occurring. Before COVID, but was amplified by it. China is going from a country that was growing at you know eight percent a year to somewhere that grows at maybe two to three percent a year, uh, realistically, and that's a huge shift. And that it also meant an an end to what had previously been the the bargain with the Chinese people, um, implicit bargain. And you know autocrats don't necessarily have to deliver on these bargains, but they people believe in them. They feel they're there, and that was essentially like. You're getting growth, you're getting prosperity, you're getting all the things that you you're getting all the things that you want. As long as you don't cross certain lines, you know, you're going to be able to continue growing and to to get to live freer and more open and richer lives. That's gone. That economic certainty about the future is gone. Instead, she has tried to lean on two new pillars of legitimacy. The idea that the party represents China's national place in the world, like its rightful place in the world. These nationalist ambitions. Um, China is great. China is strong. China is uh, Chinese can't be humiliated. Um, anybody who denigrates China is just trying to put you down, uh, and that's quite powerful. it's been in in some ways quite successful. But he's also leaning really hard on on ideology in a way that I think a lot of people miss. He's he he's leaning really hard on the basically the idea that. Um, mar- that Marxism or the sort of, you know, bastardized, like, statified CCP version of Marxism can be can convince people, can win people over. There's enormous amounts of money and time being spent on that and on education campaigns and propaganda campaigns. And that, I, I think, has been very unsuccessful for the most part because it's mostly fucking boring. It's mostly stuff from Xi's generation that young people don't care about one bit, And most of it has involved not not putting forward any kind of positive message, but instead just denigrating everything else and trying to cut off people's access. Um, And people are uh, and it's hard to know whether she knows that's not working. But I think these protests will be taken as a sign, not that it. Not that it isn't working, but that they have to do it more because the young people are so ideologically unreliable. The, un, the young people have been corrupted; they're untrustworthy. Foreign forces are everywhere, even when we've even when we've raised the Great Firewall and cut and stopped showing foreign movies and all this kind of thing. Who knows where where the, the ideological infiltration will creep in? And, and we saw that in Russia with Dreschnev, with Dreshnev and others. We see this doubling down on like this. these old ideas that have lost their appeal. And that I think, and so it's a kind of, you know, the beatings will continue and the beatings will continue until morale improves scenario. Um, The very stuff that that caused these young people to come out on the streets is the stuff that will be doubled down on in the aftermath of the protests.
1: But the thing that is notable for me is that, I'm going to just be very simple in my um, summary of it, but essentially... For people, the the CCP is constructed in different tiers, different levels of seniority. And at the top, you have what's known as the Standing Committee. President Xi uh, is basically, you know, he has four or five people that surround him around there. And um, from what I understand, James, he basically gutted some of the most senior members of the CCP uh, and uh, replaced them with people who weren't based
2: really on metocracy, but were simply just yes men. Well, I can't remember. It was never. Very based on it was never very based on meritocracy. No, uh, not even that. Okay, interesting. Uh, but, but, yeah,
1: could you just take us through perhaps a little bit more about who he so, replaced at the very top, um and how
2: he's really tried to centralise that control what he around did, him? Basically. what he did was the same thing that that Mao did. Uh, it, it's not necessarily that he's promoted untalented people. I would say many of them are smart, many of them are cunning, many of them are even technically adept in some ways. Is that he's promoted people who have no power base and no support other than him, other than that they're they're devoted on and dependent dependent on his power. And Mao did the same thing. He deliberately promoted up figure relatively minor people in order in order that they couldn't threaten him, that they couldn't that they couldn't um, potent like potentially topple him. So she has surrounded himself with people who. Have been very close to him since his early career. But it's not even really the, the the personal loyalty that matters. Because you know, these are all bastards. Let's be honest about this. These are people operating inside what's essentially a mafia-type structure of personal power and control, with where you have to operate with a, a degree of absolute ruthlessness in order to survive. And that doesn't mean they don't sometimes they don't have personal links and feelings. It means that um, sentimentality is not a huge factor here. We saw that in how absolutely nobody or was willing to actually stand up on behalf of Fu Jintao, uh, a man who had been their, you know, supposed friend and leader for many years, uh, had worked closely with some of them. So it's not, that, it's not that the people who he came up with are necessarily personally loyal to him, he might think they are, um, but I, I think even he doesn't necessarily count on that. It's that they have nothing else but him. They, they have no family connections. They have no regional power base. They they haven't even been able to really construct strong departmental power bases or networks of connection themselves. It's all, it all links back to she and his power. And if he goes, they're all in trouble. And as, and by um, drawing all this power into himself, he binds them even more tightly to him he leaves them even even more helpless if if he falls now the thing is of course the the very interesting scenario here is what if he has a heart attack what if he goes overnight who there's no clear successor everybody's floundering people don't really have like there's no clear clear like strength to draw upon but there's no there's no illustration that he's in
1: ill health. I mean, sorry to, to, well, to, to, to jump a, in, but uh, what you is know Putin has got concerns, but I, do, I haven't heard anything about that. Well, uh, she is she is seven, seventy now, I think, or 69. well, he he I know he did re, he he basically he, blew he, off he that law. You, you, if you're over sixty-eight, you have to retire. Yeah, yeah.
2: He, he, he changed it's, that. Uh, he you know he he smokes. Um, he's not supposed to. He's that's. Um, he's supposed to have given up smoking, but he didn't. Per Tony's intelligence, he's still a pretty heavy smoker. He has—he may have gout. That was one of the prevailing rumors about his disappearance in 2012. That he had basically a series of bad gout attacks. Like he's generally not a guy in in great health. And while the CCP leaders have a pretty good record of living a long time, they have a dedicated gerontocracy unit um, at High that takes care of them. Jong Hai has the the Chinese equivalent of the Kremlin, like this, where the, the central leaders live. He he's he could still be incapacitated, you know, for health reasons, um, pretty easily. I think like that's a none, There's definitely a non-zero risk. You know, you 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 have this situation. I think where it, it's all it's also he's. So the other thing he did at the party congress was he purged, like down to the ground, any remnant of former factions, particularly the what was called the Chinese Youth League faction, which was the Group loosely associated with Hu, Hu Jintao, who had come up mostly through holding positions in the, the Chinese Youth League as young, youngish men, um, they they were just kicked out incredibly thoroughly. Like didn't make any level of leadership in a, a serious way people who who you know people thought they were going to be on the standing committee which is the the very core of leadership the top sort of six or seven didn't even make like the next like like the the list of two hundred you know it's just an incredibly personalized and power and paranoid system now one that's entirely dependent upon one man at the top and where his own chief objective and within the party seems to be ensuring his own his own safety and his his own continued rule
1: but what of this um so just bringing in that foreign policy element a little bit more um and then i uh, i've got a couple more questions for you and then i i want to open it up to i see michael and uh, we also have a member of the audience who'd like to join us but what of these statements that he made at the uh, APEC uh, a week ago that he basically admitted, I'm going to paraphrase, but he basically acknowledged that Wolf Warrior diplomacy was... Limited and, and for the audience to contextualise, Wolf Warrior Diplomacy is basically a, a Western coined term to describe the shift in foreign policy that the Chinese Communist Party has undertaken in the past 10, 12 years, um, particularly since sort of some people use the Beijing Olympics as a notable moment. President Xi's election, obviously, is another appointment as being notable. Um, but so, so, could you take us through a little bit about well, he didn't, his comments? He didn't say, are
2: they say better, anything like about wolf warrior diplomacy. Some of the readings from the US and others were that the the summits, the reaching out, the relatively mild tone on that occasion was an attempt to paper over the damage that wolf warrior diplomacy has done. But we've seen absolutely no shift away from wolf warrior diplomacy. We haven't seen any of the key personnel associated with it, uh, most particularly Zhao Lijian, at the, uh, who's the foreign who's the foreign ministry spokesman demoted or moved or anything like this there's there's this constant like every time china is able to play nice for five minutes people are like oh it's china giving up wolf warrior diplomacy but there's really been no sign of that happening um because it's still very clear that that nationalism and ultra nationalism is the the way forward for political promotion and um and for getting an edge in the domestic politics and we we've seen in the aftermath of the protests, the immediate the immediate commissioning of a um, the first statement that we have that that seems to sort of touch on this officially, blames foreign forces, and um, you're getting a lot of you're going to get a ton of anti-U.S. language as a result of it. So you know you can it's like you can have they can put on smiles for, put on smiles at a conference, but they but until they take steps to seriously rein in their own system. Which is ultra, which is very key towards ultra-nationalists. There's really no sign of wolf warrior diplomacy being dropped in any way, and she certainly hasn't spoken out against it himself or condemned it in any way.
1: I've got. Oh, this is a, this makes me want to uh, speak a one more questions because this is a, this is particularly where I'm fascinated by. It. So, do you think therefore there's a bit of a fundamental misunderstanding about? China from the West. Obviously, I think the West isn't a monolith, and this is something that makes me frustrated as we refer to the, the Europe, uh, Europeans, America, Australia, and others as a collective. When there's very different foreign policy and bilateral relations with China, I mean, just look at how Germany and China int- were interacting versus, say, uh, was it Lithuania and their their establishment of a Chinese mm-hmm. office? So there's a there's a big. Variancy in um in relations with china but do you think there's a fundamental lack a fundamental lack of understanding between western policymakers and what china uh, says and what they want to do and, and, yeah. and just to frame that even more uh i think of the example here in washington i mean there are some pretty hawkish members of the DC establishment who think that, you know, China wants to replace the US as a, as the hegemonic power. And other people argue, no, they don't want to p- replace them. They have no aspirations to become the new hegemon. They simply just want to make the international order a little bit more of a level playing field. Would you align with that more? Or, or you don't think it's either of those? I, I
2: mean, China's very <laughs> explicit about wanting an international order shaped in its image. It's not it, you know, it's not a secret. Um, and the very, and all their materials are about, you know, the, the, the inevitable fall or collapse of the US in really quite dramatic ways. You know, they thought it was going to happen in 2008 and they got very excited. But I, I, I think any idea that there's some faction in China that aspires towards, you know, like peaceful, like... A Level playing field rather than a China-dominated one is basically fantasy. And you know, like big powers want to rule the world, and that's kind of kind of what they do. There's there's no there's a there's a very low un- level of understanding of how Chinese systems work and the internal factors that drive most of China's external politics in DC. There's a lot of mirroring. The problem's even worse on the Chinese side, um, which. You, you know on the one hand you think it's strange because the american system the western systems in general are much more open it's much easier for the chinese to get information about how you know western leaders think but it's also much harder for them to process that information without a strong ideological lens or to even say things um that go against the prevailing party you know party narratives and increasingly that's the case internally in china in the party as well not just for external not just for public consumption. Increasingly, the internal discussion systems have become so corrupted by devotion to Xi that there's it, that it's really very hard to 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 put forward counter-narratives, which it used to be moderately possible to do. Uh, Dick Kang at, Khan at uh, AP had a really good piece on that recently on the internal report system. So, yeah, in general, and, and you know, you can see it in two ways. You can see both the... Um, the eagerness with which these signs of like re-engagement are taken by mostly by people who are desperate for engagement with China because it fits into their view of the world and they want to make it 2006 again by science or magic. They want a China that seems to be, you know, growing into the world rather than away from it. But then you also have things like these waves of Taiwan invasion panic, which are based on very, very little. It, It feels like every so often like DC establishment discovers that Taiwan exists and is in danger and decides that the invasion is going to come like tomorrow and talking about stuff in, you know, what is probably five to six year timelines of threat or more is, is just seems to be hard in that environment.
1: Fascinating. What about Taiwan then? Um, I I, I think we should save uh, Taiwan and China more specifically for maybe a second conversation if you're, if you're game. Um, But I do want to ask about, in the context of the of the protests, you know, clearly we've got a, a large array of dis, uh, grievances, resentment, frustration over the CCP's handling, uh, President Xi's handling of the zero COVID policy. Um, and one perspective that I read once, which I thought was quite interesting uh, and refreshing, at least one I hadn't seen before, was that, you know, Taiwan is utilised as a uh, instrument by which to develop uh, nationalistic sentiment. You know, there, there isn't, at least yet, an immediacy to te- to invade and and to to take back the island um, so they but they deliberately drum the the, the fanfare of, of nationalism by saying we will rekindle you know the great uh, national rejuvenation and Taiwan will be part of that etc cetera, etc cetera, one day and that gets restoration of faith in the in the regime in in the party what's your feeling regarding that is this overstated or is there a no, little bit of could we see them I you know, mean,
2: using taiwan a little bit in the next they, couple of weeks to sort of well you know they definitely them? look you know retaking taiwan is real aspiration but it's also a convenient way to drum up nationalist feelings one of the things most sincerely and thoroughly believed in china is this like even from quite liberal people the the Idea that Taiwan is somehow naturally part of China is really, really strong. It's it's kind of drummed into you aged five, and it's the stuff that's drummed into you aged five that really sticks. You know, they're, they're always very happy to like beat that drum. Uh, I, I think they actually were not comfortable with the with the degree they had. It's a double. It's a double edged sword. Um, I was about to say a double edged drum there, but obviously not they were uncomfortable with the degree to which they had to act to satisfy nationalism after the Pelosi visit. Um, and they were trying in fact, to roll back a little bit of that for more talks with the U S um, because they had, they broke off a bunch of talks because of the Pelosi visit. And they were trying to re- resume them very, you know, quietly and without the public kind of getting it t- like noticing it. They have, they have no like immediate Taiwan invasion plans. They do, and they, they are happy to have it as something they can, you know, unify people around. But it also kind of exists as a as a kind of fallback insurance policy. That is, If stuff is ever going completely to shit for the party on the mainland, I think they'll try to invade Taiwan in a sort of effort to to quell everything and rally people together. We're nowhere near that now. But like if you had a, a scenario where they were in a Iran type scenario, I could see them doing a very stupid war um, as a kind of last-ditch hope in the kind of fashion that the junta did in the Falklands, for instance. So yeah, it's it's a strong nationalist point. It's also something they really want, but something they're relatively realistic about the military difficulties of and would prefer to try and like squeeze back into China by coercion and political means
1: i appreciate the argentinian reference um there's nothing more common than a strong man uh utilizing foreign policy to try and drum up domestic or as as you mentioned um i mean that's what erdogan does on a frequent basis and Putin mm-hmm. as well so no I think that's a great point. My last question then is just we've seen the the uh the g twenty um we saw this three hour long conversation between biden and g and and I use this tentatively, but that's also because other people have used this word. Some onlookers looked at the sort of the takeaways from that meeting as being positive, not necessarily the word I would use, but some people did. So um, could you take us through a little bit how you see U.S.-China relations now? Not necessarily a reset, but are they more constructive? Uh, I think they got the Chinese to resign the declaration of climate change. But also we've had the head of the Taiwanese um, leadership step down. So there's 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 a shift in that trilateral yeah. d- uh, dynamic there, isn't it? Could you just outline your thoughts well, on let's that?
2: Let's be clear. She stepped. Uh, Tsai Ing-wen has stepped down as leader of her party. She's still president of Taiwan. They she's she's relinquished a leadership role in order to let uh, in order to let new people like come in and take uh She hasn't. She's still leader of the country. And I think by term limit, I I'm not. One hundred percent, but I think by term it, she couldn't have run again anyway. Um, so that, so, so the Taiwanese government is still the, the Taiwanese government is still DPP controlled and very much in sync with the US. The KMT has had to readjust its policies somewhat because it was losing out electorally very badly by being too associated with China. So even a KMT government is not likely to be you know rushing into bed with China anytime soon. Um, it's going to be a much more balanced, you know, process of trying to, trying to sort of um, some some easing of tensions with Beijing while still keeping these very tight ties to the US. I would say we saw a moderate amount of hope of like the, the addition of some ballast back to the relationship, of some of the things that kept disasters keep disasters from breaking out. Um, in the same way as we talked to the Soviets during the first Cold War, I think we're we're kind of learning that we're going to have to find ways of talking to the Chinese. I think the protests are going to scupper a lot of that because you're going to get a big wave of anti-U.S. feeling because the protests are going to be blamed on the U.S., uh, even though the U.S. doesn't have anything to do with them. So I'd say we were, you know, if we had had this question like last week, I would have said the near term looked moderately optimistic, assuming you were starting at a very, very, very low point in U.S.-China relations. I would say now the prospects are pretty bad.
0: Interesting. All
1: right. Well, thank you for that. And just for context, everyone, uh, the two main parties in Taiwan are the DPP, which is known also as the Green Party, and the KMT, which is known also as the Blue Party. Uh, they have slight variations, but generally they, they tend to both. I think, would you agree, James, favour the status quo overall
2: at the moment? Um, slightly aligns with more you know, unification potential. The, the, the DPP is much more of a pro-independence pro party, but it operates within The realistic constraints of not being able to declare independence, like arguably you would have, you know, Taiwan would a Taiwan that was not under immediate threat would probably be independent, you know, within a few years uh, as things stand. It's the it's the explicit Chinese threat to invade if independence is declared that maintains the status quo. I see. Okay. I appreciate that clarification for our listeners. Thank you very much. All right. uh, Let's get to some
1: some other people. Uh, Zuma, thanks for joining us. I'd love to hear your your question for James.
3: So one thing that uh, I've heard a couple times from people in the China Watcher community is that Xi Jinping is under greater threat here than the Chinese Communist Party. I'm a little suspicious of that because how on earth would you even go about removing him at this point? You'd have to do a coup, or I assume they wouldn't do an assassination. But you wouldn't. Have, there's no formal method really to get rid of him. And on the other hand, it might actually be a greater threat to the party than to she, because she can fall back on a national populist effort to try and make himself the sole center of power in the country and hollow out the party as need be to eliminate any power centers that could oppose him. So, could you elaborate a little bit on that, James? I know it's not you who's saying that, but as others. I think. It could be interesting to hear about.
2: Yeah, I think. Okay, so I think the she. I, I think that there are there, there are ways in which she could be deposed without you know the palace being seized and and gunfire at dawn kind of stuff. Com- Communist parties, Leninist states have uh have a bunch of internal kind of bureaucratic mechanisms that uh, or procedural mechanisms that they opaque to outsiders. But you know, that but I think if there was a an anti- Xi conspiracy would be one of those things where it comes down to like to like an unexpected vote basically within the Politburo itself um, uh, essentially the Leninist equivalent of a motion of no confidence and a sudden removal accompanied by control of the security forces. That's the model we've seen in other you know seizures of power like uh Khrushchev's elimination of um even our uh, much more slow and gradual easing out of Hua Guofang. What they can't do is they can't do the done thing where they build up power gradually within the provinces and throughout the system because there's so much, there's so much intensity of of watching, there's so much panorama. So it would have to be, it would have to be like a full on like top level decapitation where she was essentially bustled off into, into detention. Um, and it was presented as a pre- presented as a as a done deal to the rest of the system, which would probably, to be honest, go just go along with it. Like, just you know, if you if you took out Xi and had him under and had him under arrest, and there was some, and there was a sign of like legitimacy to the whole thing. That is, if it was signed off on by the by the rest of the, the Politburo, even the twenty five person group. I I think the vast majority of the Chinese system would just be would just be like, well, you know that happened let 's uh who's in let's try and work out who's in charge next there'd probably be there'd probably be a period of like a, a couple of days where they tried to work out you know what had happened um, and to make sure that they would that that you know they were that the new leadership was firmly in charge but as long as they took control of the so as, as they were putting out the right messages, I think you could i think they could pull it off very cleanly but that 's assuming. But that is. But the big if in that is that: how do you get all those people to coordinate? How how are you certain that they'll be on your side rather than stab you in the back at the last moment? How do you get the security forces—that is, the the guys literally manning the the, the gates of Zhongnanhai—on board? How do you do that under conditions of, of much more surveillance than in the past, where she controls the surveillance mechanisms and where the surveillance, the security authorities are reporting to she. My feeling on that is that if there is ever going to be a moment for a decapitation strike, it's going to come after an event that causes all of the central leadership to be gathered together and have the opportunity to talk to each other with relative with, without the feeling that they're being watched, whether that's on, you know, long walks in the garden or in the mountains, as they did in nineteen seventy six, for instance, when they took down the gang of four. my bet on that has always been Jiang Zemin's death, like when Jiang Zemin finally dies um, and he's in his late 90s now, there will be a big old funeral where all the party leadership comes together, where they have the opportunity to talk and where if there is going to be an anti-Xi plot, it'll be then. Now, the other possibility is if stuff started really spiraling out of control you could see people being more willing to take the risk and, and move it and sort of improvised like anti Shiism to try and regain control. Like if, if protests, if zero COVID protests started, you know, breaking out everywhere, there was violence or this kind of thing. That's a much riskier scenario for she.
1: Thanks a lot for that. I don't tend to go to questions such as those, but I think it's worth entertaining it all the same. So thanks Stephen for that. Michael, do you want to come back in?
4: Uh, yeah, thanks very much. Uh, So just before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Xi and Putin put out that statement that included uh, a a line about their friendship being unlimited. And since that time, there's been a lot of scrutiny as to whether China is providing material support to Russia in the war. You know, it it appears Russia is reaching out to several countries around the world for additional support. So I, I was interested in your general thoughts on China's feeling about that relationship. And then More specifically, because it's a development that's upcoming in the next few days, uh, how China might feel about the imposition of the oil price cap uh, by Western countries, whether China sees that as an interference in its markets. Uh, I note I put in the resources at the top in the nest tweet uh, that uh, just breaking that apparently China will not accept Russian issued insurance certificates on um, transport for oil. Uh, And that's something that had been thought they might permit Mm. in order to allow circumvention. So, uh, wondering uh, general thoughts on the relationship and specifically the oil gap. So, I don't
2: know about the enough about the oil gap to be able to talk on it confidently. I will say in general that that China has put out a lot of rhetorical, like a lot of rhetorical war, like um, pro Russian stuff, but been very reluctant to take really practical moves to support it. And largely complied and gone along with sanctions in order to avoid being caught up itself. And so I suspect you'll get like the same combination of like a bunch of noise, but not a lot of a a bunch of pro Russia noise, not a lot of pro Russia action. Um, In general, I would say the relationship uh, has been damaged by Ukraine. And that not that they were against, not that they were really against the invasion itself, but I think they thought the invasion would be more limited would be much more successful. They were, uh, I suspect that she, you know, she is now, or people, sources are now claiming to the Americans that she was not told about the invasion. Um, I think that's bullshit. I think what happened is that she was told that the invasion was going to happen and was going to be very successful and thought that it was kind of, you know, a fair company. Um, So they're, they're still... You know, all of the Chinese, like the the evening news broadcast, is just wildly pro Russian, anti NATO, um, very very anti NATO uh, tone. s I think that b- behind that, they are kind of pissed at Russia, but they're pissed at Russia for failing more than anything else. They're pissed at Russia for exposing how strong the West still is in some ways, and they're and they're a little bit cautious of the of the amount of strength that though that the West showed, both in terms of you know. Moving of sanctions, but also but also material support for Ukraine. I don't think that means that any kind of serious break with Russia. They're definitely just going to be more skeptical of what the Russians were telling them because the Russians were feeding into the Chinese system in a pretty big way. Uh, Russian personnel were all over like military meetings in China. Uh, they were elements of like Russian conspiracy theories were entering into like. Uh, the way that the, the Chinese establishment sees the world, including you know the the homophobia, the anti-Semitism, and the general anti-Westernness. So I think we might see more more caution about believing what the Russians say, which is probably a good thing for everyone.
1: Uh, but James, uh, it's been an absolute delight. I love the fact that you live like four blocks from me in DC. Uh, is there anything you'd like to leave us with? You know, have you got anything coming out in the next couple of days? Uh, as I say to other people, there is in uh, many pin links above uh, the piece that James released in the past day about the protests, uh, and implications of that or potential implications at least. Um, but, yeah, James, if there's anything else you'd like to mention, any any underlying Points and things you'd like to share them.
2: Um, I'm just to say we're we, you know we're just about to publish another piece um, on the uh, the the role of the police in the protests and the actions that they're taking that'll be out uh, in the next sort of half hour or so. And otherwise, I would just say everybody you know if you're looking if you're following the Chinese protest stuff you know look to the weekend like weekends are always the big protest time all over the world. There's always you you often get an initial spurt of protest on one weekend that seems to die out and then surges up again the next like friday or saturday
1: very good point uh we've seen that happening even in britain we'll see uh the brits for some reason coming out and uh and protesting at certain times in in large arrays. but um with that everyone thank you very much for joining uh this space will be converted into a podcast and we do have some other events coming up we did have Alexandra. uh Alexander Vinman on yesterday uh, and next week I'm hoping to get uh, uh, Josh Rogan from the Washington Post on uh, we've got a few different people just to cover lots of different things as we as we come to the end of this um, extremely turbulent year and if you're interested in um, my writings or my fanfare then you can check out the pin links above I do have a sub stack so sign up for that if you're interested but otherwise Thank you James thank you Michael and Jacoby and I hope to see you guys all again in future discussions but uh,
0: take care from me you were listening to The Global Gambit. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe and leave us a review. We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Doing so helps us to be discovered by new listeners who would really enjoy our content. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Gambit where you can get additional perks and even be featured in upcoming episodes. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at The Global Gambit. Got any feedback or suggestions, such as potential guests, get in touch at theglobalgambit at gmail.com. Lastly, don't be shy. Download the Clubhouse app, listen in in real time, and even participate with questions or comments to the guests and host, Piotr. But until next time... This is The Global Gambit.